Colossians chapter 2, and this is part 2 of a message entitled Crucified with Christ. And, uh, Eric read the uh, scripture earlier, Galatians chapter 2, and we quoted a few verses out of that last week. I'll do a little bit of review here in a second after I read Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Colossians 2.10, you are complete in him, speaking of Christ, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom, in Christ, also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Last week we did part one of this, and we started looking at a, a few different texts that talked about the believer's identity with Christ in his death as he was what we called, what some theologians call, the federal head and representative of the elect. We'll kind of explain some of that here in a minute, what that means again. But we saw the basic idea that, that God in his sovereignty appointed two representative heads, Adam and Christ. And the eternal purpose of God to save his people God used his wisdom here in doing this to ensure the only way of salvation would be sure and certain and that it honors his own character and that it shows him as a God of justice and a loving Savior both at the same time. So Adam is one of the federal heads and representatives and he is the federal head and representative of the whole human race. And this is something that God set up, you know, this was his eternal purpose. He didn't ask permission. He didn't even ask Adam. He just did it. And later on, we see the clarity of this in Romans 5, where it deals with the two representatives, Adam and Christ. The clearest commentary on what took place and how God set this up and how it works is in Romans 5, where it just keeps going back and forth. Adam, Christ, Adam, Christ, death and Adam, life in Christ. So in Adam, he was representative of the whole human race. And when God said, the day you eat of this fruit that you're not supposed to eat of, the day you eat of it, you're going to die. And that death was primarily speaking of a legal condemnation, a legal death. We know that Adam eventually died and, and it you could say he's probably started dying. He lived to be pretty old. His age is recorded. He didn't die that day. 
we know he had to have died that day a different way. And it's in a representative way, in a legal way, and all those that he represented, which in other words is a whole human race, they died. So everybody born after Adam was born in his image, and they were born in sin, under the law, under, under the curse of this law that was violated, the law of not to eat, and when he ate, everybody was condemned. That was the curse. The curses were dealt out there shortly after that law was broken. And the remedy for that curse was spoken of about how that the seed of the woman shall come. This is the second representative or the last Adam, which is Christ. And he would bruise the head of the serpent in taking care of this problem for his people. And in turn, his heel would be bruised as he bruised the head of the serpent, which just mean, means he's going to receive some damage. This is not an easy task. He's going to have to die, in other words. He's going to have to suffer and die and pay the penalty to release his people out of bondage. So all the people born after Adam are born in sin, are charged with the guilt of that sin, and the fruit of that is our sin nature and the bondage and all that, all of our our immorality problem and our, our corruptness and our and our inability to be able to this our total depravity. Inability to do anything good at all. There's none good, no not one. That covers that whole thing. And it started with this first representative, Adam. When he ate, we all ate in the mind of God. That's the way it was set up. You can't get out of this. This is something God set up. And we might cover some objections to that that people might naturally have that might not know the gospel. And we'll get to that toward the end there. Now, the second Adam or Christ, the representative of God's people, the elect, the chosen sheep of God, Christ was the representative of the elect. And this was drawn up in the covenant of grace before time, that Christ was chosen, the elect one, precious, the only one qualified. And he was to come and to do the work for the elect. Thou shalt call his name Jesus for or because he shall save his people from their sins. That was the conversation between the angel and Joseph. So Christ represents the elect. And that's what we looked at last week. The whole thing that Christ did, how that we were in him as our representative. We were in union with him. And what he did is counted as us doing it because he's our representative. And there seems to be, I don't know if anybody ever noticed this. I, I've Every time I hear it, it's weird to me. I've been to conferences and I've heard preachers that actually have gone to seminary, school, and I've heard them preach, and I, a few in particular, and they would just stop and they would say, and I've heard people say this in writing and in videos and different things, any way to get the, the message of scripture out, and they would stop and say that they were perplexed. They didn't know why that God allowed sin to enter into the world. This is, this is elementary, you know, this is, this is basic. Is sin an afterthought? I mean, we're going to start asking questions back to that question. 
is sin an afterthought with God? Is it, I mean, just the whole purpose of God. Does God work it out in such a way that he uh, just kind of like winds things up and he turns it loose and he says, I'm going to check out and see how this works, you know, and then things start popping up and happening and then he starts reacting. No, like chasing his tail. God doesn't have a tail and he doesn't chase it. There's a verse in Acts that says something like, Known unto God are all his works from the foundation of the world. Some people might quote that and say, See, God knows everything before it happens. That's not what that means. That means he decreed all things. He runs all things. They happen because he made them happen. He doesn't sit back and use his projectory and say, uh, I see what's going to happen. You know what that means? That means that God, the eternal, all-knowing God, unchangeable God, changes because he looks to that, reacts, and he learns, and he adjusts his mind by what he learns. That's not immutability. That's changeability. That's God changing. That's God reacting. That's God like we are. That's God what does the verse say in the Psalms? You thought that I was altogether likened to yourself. This is not this God. This God declares the end from the beginning. He is not a, a reactionary God. So it's very important for us to see that sin was not an afterthought and it was not associated with some plan B. There is no plan B with God, period. There's none. You can go through bad theology and you can find a lot of plan B theology. Widespread, different aspects. So the eternal purpose of God, we've talked about this a lot, is to glorify himself. This is God's chief purpose. If you could collect all scripture and interpret all the scripture and hone it down, boil it down, you would see that God's eternal chief purpose is to glorify himself and display his character and magnify that in the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is a central theme of the whole Bible and the accomplishment of that cross fulfilled the main thing of glorifying God in that act. That's God's purpose and he accomplished that purpose. And now we just look at it and glory in it ourselves. He's glorified in our hearts, in our minds. And we just keep dipping into that every week, every day. And that's what we feed on. We know the result of that. Christ was, because he accomplished that work, he was raised. He ascended unto heaven. And then he was exalted to the throne by God. And we read in Ephesians that he's in the highest place that anybody could be ever in this age or any age to come. No higher ever anybody. Can't get to him. Can't take him down. We talked about the security of that last week. He is our salvation. My righteousness is the Lord our righteousness on the throne. And he cannot be taken down off the throne. That means we read representatively how that we are seated with him. We cannot be unseated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is our righteousness. 
and our righteousness is secure in him. We're complete in him. Since he's in the highest place and, and the, what we have in him, we have all these spiritual blessings. We talk about those all the time. This eternal redemption that was obtained by him for us is far more greater than anything that we ever lost in Adam. I mean, we, we can look at Adam, we can see where he was and what happened to him after and, and how he fell, where he fell to. And people look at that and say, man, that's a, that's a big deal. It is a big deal. But what's a bigger deal is where we're at now, way better than Adam ever thought about being. We're in a far greater place. We are complete in Christ, like our text starts out saying. So knowing that should erase all these question marks in our head about why did God, quote unquote, allow, I don't like that word, sin into the world. Why did he allow sin? I, I just said, we have to conclude it's because he has got his people that he represents in a better place, in a secure place, a complete salvation in Christ. So think about that phrase that people, I don't like the word allow or permission, where God permits certain things. It's almost like he's sort of passive. He says, somebody else comes up with the idea and he's like, I guess, go ahead, you know, I I'll let you. Going back to that first idea, how that God is the one that drives everything, his purpose. He doesn't let people come up with stuff and then let them run it by him and then he permits it. God's purpose is for sin to come into the world. God will make sure sin comes into the world. You cannot stop God from causing sin to come into the world. It's the purpose of God. You want to accuse him of things because he does that? Feel free. But I like what I have in Christ as a result. A lot of accusations against the Lord Almighty, and they come in many different ways, and some are subtle. And when we talk about how that God is the one that decreed sin to come into the world so he could accomplish his purpose, people say, well, your God is a monster. They use all kind of names toward us and toward this God that we believe in that has the sovereign purpose to ensure things come to pass. He has all the means at his, at his disposal. He has all the providence, the power in his providence to get these things accomplished. We noted, noted last week about how that he is in our text. He is head over all principalities and powers. We looked at a couple different texts that said that. He's in charge of uh, Satan and his angels and all the demonic things, bad governments. Anything that we look at that's negative, that's kind of maybe scary to us and, and that we don't like, he's running it all. He knows what he's doing. And he's doing it all for his purpose. We talked about false prophets. You know, we are to preach the gospel. And we see somebody over here preaching a counter gospel. God is involved there. He's got that there to show contrasts of his truth. As in Romans 9, where he talks about two different vessels, one unto honor and one unto dishonor. And then you have people come in and they want, they want to soften that up. They, they don't want that wide chasm there. They want to try to bring these two together and say, there's not much different. He just loved this one less. Keep your hands off that. The potter 
shows the wide contrast, the stark contrast of these two things. Always, he's always working in contrasts and comparisons and, and, and opposites to show the gleaming truth and the glory of the truth versus the, the pitiful lies that are out there. So not only did Christ represent his people, but some of these verses we looked at, it described, it's not just we made an announcement that, okay, Christ represented his people and moved on. These texts describe how that took place, what was going on. And it talks about um, our connection with him as we are identified with him as our representative and it describes it in the text. I just want to say, and I meant to bring this up last week, but I want to talk uh, just real quick. Spent more time on this before in more detail. And if there's any questions about this, um, you want to talk to me about it, and you want me to develop this more, and I may do it on the, uh, the election series coming up. But I want to talk about and describe the difference real quick of substitution and representation. Substitution, we know, is, a, is an easy idea how that, that we come out and he goes in. Christ is our substitute. He bore the wrath of God actually, so we didn't have to actually. So that is us coming out and him going in. Representation is putting us with him and in him. So you see it's, it's quite different. In substitution, we come out, but in representation, he puts us in there with him in a legal way. So we are legally connected to him in union with him as he represents us. And this is in the mind of God, the way God does things, just like imputation is in the mind of God. He doesn't, he doesn't impute some solid form of sin, like you could actually hold it, and, and, and dump it on Christ or, or infuse it or inject it into him. That's not, that's not the way sin is transferred to Christ. And righteousness is not done the same way. It's not, it's not a mass of righteousness or not a, uh, something injected or infused into us. That's, the, that's a Roman Catholic idea. God does these things in a legal way. And it's in his mind. And if it's in his mind, he says it out of his mouth, through his word, and this is what he means. And we believe it by faith. God says that it's true. I believe it. I, I even understand it because he explains it in his word. Last week we looked at um, the Colossians 2 text, some of it, and then we looked at uh, Isaiah 53. We talked about the circumcision. And then we went to Isaiah and it talked about how that we know that circumcision has to do with cutting off and discarding of some flesh during the rite and ceremony of circumcision. So this is the same way with Christ in Isaiah 53. He was cut off from the land of the living. Then he died. He was completely cut off from it. We went to Galatians 2 and, and Eric reread some of that, the last few verses there about being crucified with Christ. And we talked about how that that was... That was not, if we were crucified with Christ, you see how that we came out and he substituted for us, but that's talking about we're crucified with him. That's the representation part where we are with him. We're crucified with him. 
And then we looked at uh, Romans 6, 3 through 4. And let's go ahead and go back to Romans. We're going to be coming back to Colossians here in a second. But let's look at uh, Romans 6. I'm going to reread verses 3 and 4. And we won't go too much back into those two verses because so we looked at them last week. But we're looking at a lot of text, which is kind of hard to spend too much time in one area. If we do, uh, I lose the bottom half of my notes. I'm not going to do a part three, and I'm not going to do that. Verse three, let's just start reading there. And we'll slow down at verse five because that's where we stopped. Do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Now, we tied this idea here to the circumcision in Christ, which is talking about being in him in his death as he represented us. We also tied it to what Eric just read a while ago, the Galatians 2, uh, 20, where we're crucified with Christ. So we are baptized into his death. We know that Christ himself was fully immersed in the wrath of God, no mercy. And so that we were in him when that took place. And it's going to talk about the old man. And we kind of looked at that a little bit last week, but we're going to look at that some more as we go on down through here. Therefore, verse four, we were buried with him by the baptism into death so that as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Now we went to, um, a verse in Romans 5 that talked about justification and life. And we talked about how that a lot of this language, we I think we have to distinguish what's it talking about concerning legal life or spiritual life. If you look in Romans 5, the issue is not the sin nature and regeneration. That's not the issue. When you look at the Christ made us righteous part, in Romans 5, it's not talking about regeneration. When you look at the Adam part of it, it's talking about legal condemnation. And now it says it's talking about condemnation and justification. It doesn't jump to regeneration. Upon that ground of Christ establishing righteousness and we be justified, what flows from that, of course, is the merits of Christ earn all spiritual blessings, and we do get the work of the Spirit in us based upon the ground of Christ. And we need that. If we don't have that, we're, we're in trouble. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, the natural man can't receive the things of the Spirit. They're, they're spiritually understood. So we have to have the Spirit of God. We believe in the Trinity. We worship the Trinity. We worship the Spirit as well as the Father and the Son. But we know, and we have looked at so many times, the Spirit of God himself in the inspired Word of God said that his task is to testify of Christ. And Christ has all preeminence. In the preeminence of Christ, he established righteousness. That righteousness is imputed to our account. We have justification, and then the Spirit does his work based on that. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, verse 5. For or because if we have been, here it is again, joined together. Here again is the, is the union 
that we have with him because he represents us. Today, the form of government that we have is a democratic republic, which we're under a constitution and we have elected representatives that are supposed to represent the people. And when the chosen elected representatives throughout the districts in our state go to Columbus, the capital, and they vote on particular bills of legislation, when they vote, it's as if we vote. And we know some people, some people, first of all, don't vote, didn't elect those guys. Some people I know wouldn't choose any of them. <laughs> and that's fine. Yeah, but that's the idea. That's the way it's set up. They are supposed to represent us. And when we see that not happening, we try to vote them out so that they will represent us. And the representation is, is not always equal and it's not always fair and balanced. But this representation is. This representation is perfect because it's set up by God. So we're joined together, notice, in the likeness of his death. And if that's the case, look at the rest of the verse after the comment. We shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So we see an effect here. There's a cause and effect here. We see a successful death take place. Therefore, automatically, because Christ did it right, he fulfilled all the demands of God's holy law and his inflexible justice. He did it right and he earned this mediatorial lordship by his perfect sacrifice and it was acceptable to the Father and the Father promised in the covenant that he raised him up because he fulfilled all the conditions. The Father demanded all the demands and stipulations, promises and so on. He was raised. It shows his success. And I've said so many times, if you take the, the, the most popular false gospel out here, and if you look at it, it shows the failure of some other Christ that we don't believe in. We might have used to believe it in him. But it shows the failure of that Christ. We reject that Christ. And if that was the truth, if that was really the one... <coughs> He'd still be in the grave. He would still be in the grave because he did not succeed. He would be rotting right now. We know that Christ the Lord succeeded and finished the work. And he did it right, did it perfectly. And as a result, he was, resurrect he was raised up, the promise of the resurrection. He did not see corruption. He was raised so as he was raised, we are raised because we are raised in a representative. Verse 6, knowing this, Paul here writing, he, he's like assuming he's moving on. You better know what he's talking about in verse six, uh, 5 because we're going on verse 6. He say, well, we know this, so let's bring it to the next connecting thought. Until you, until you know this, don't move on. Because it has to be connected. Because if the first part doesn't work, the rest won't work either. And Paul does that with his language through, throughout the book of Romans. It's just, uh, I like it a lot. Knowing this, 
that our old man, there it is again. Now, we saw that in uh, Colossians. And um, it's in, I believe, also Ephesians. I think I have that noted down below. I don't know if we'll get there or not. But our old man is crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be destroyed. So our old man, we identified with our own persons and with Adam as Adam legally represented us. In other words, in other words, outside of Christ, apart from Christ, this old man is crucified with him and cast off. Referring back to our text, the circumcision of Christ. So in him, the old man is cast off. God killed the old man in Christ. The old man is our problem. The old man has to go. In order that the body of sin might be destroyed, and notice this, and that from now on we should not serve sin. Well, we can't if the old man is dead. We're, we're, we have a, a new master. We are slaves of righteousness. We are no longer in bondage anymore. So sin and death, in other words, have no more dominion over us. Now, see, that's why that connecting thought, knowing this, you've got to follow that thought through. Knowing that these things are taking place by Christ, we've been joined together with him in the likeness of death and then in also in the likeness of the resurrection. Knowing this, that takes care of the dominion of death and sin, hell and the grave. It is finished. For he who died, verse 7, has been, some versions say freed from sin, but the word is justified. It's the same word justified that we use in all the other texts that talk about our justification, our legal justification. So he who died is justified from sin. So Christ is justified from sin. He took sin on. He paid the price to satisfy law and justice, to pay for the guilt of that sin, and he got it off of him. He put it away, as the scripture says in, in Hebrews. He put sin away, and it's gone. Now, now, of course, we know the end result. I'm going to get too far ahead of myself, but God can't find it anymore. He, he forgot about it on purpose. <laughs> That's the power that he has. The all-knowing God has this power to forget about sin because the, the language is showing that it's gone, in other words. It's east-west, farthest away from, you know, again, there's contrast. As far as you can take it, it's gone. It's down at the bottom of the sea of forgetfulness. It's, it's done. So therefore, his people are justified from sin. There's no sin. There's no charges anymore. They're in the state of justification, which means they are declared perfectly righteous because of Christ, their substitute and representative. And now, automatically, they're in a state to where sin cannot be charged. The non-imputation of sin. Blessed is the man, Romans 4, blessed is the man, David said, to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And just raise the question. Might as well. After this took place, could God the Father look at one of those for whom Christ died and charge them with sin? I mean, say, say a person, if everybody in the world would try to think of the worst sin, first of all, you'd have all kinds of different answers. It'd be just kind of interesting to hear what people's answers are about the worst sin, right? But 
everybody get together and find out what that worst sin is and, and nail it on this guy. And let's say he's one of the elect. And we ask the question, and you come and pound that as much as you want. You quantify that as much as you want. You're the worst man that ever lived on the face of the earth. Could God charge this man with that sin? Could he? Is God able to? That's the question. No, God is not even able to do that. After Christ, the representative has paid for that sin. It's not that he won't. God can't. It's in that category of God cannot lie. God cannot change. Certain things that God cannot do. And saying that is not to God's detriment. It's to his glory. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? The question is asked in Romans 8. Well, nobody. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at verse 8. But if we died with Christ, keeps going back to that theme, we believe that we shall also live with him. There again, cause and effect. If we died with him, we believe that we will live with him. We have life in Christ. He is life. He's not just on the throne and we look at him on the throne and say, he's alive. It's more than that. He's life. So the life that we have in him is justification primarily. And then we have spiritual life. We have eternal life. We have all aspects of life in Christ. And we see the work that he's done to get that for us. Then you have people talking about how that, that that aspect of life can be lost. That's a different Christ. That is a Christ whose work can be defeated. That is a Christ whose work had failed, no doubt. His sheep shall never perish because of what he did. His death is effectual, in other words. So you see the cause and effect. We died with him. We're going to live with him. We have life now with him in him. Verse 9, knowing, there again some knowledge tied to the, tied to the things that were set up there. Knowing that when Christ was raised from the dead, he dies no more. Once and for all time. He doesn't have to continue dying. Death no longer has dominion over him. Like forever. Since that happened, when sin was put on him, he took care of it. Death does not have dominion. He took care of that in dying. It took his death to do this. He had to die so that he could defeat death with his death. As he represents us. Can't we say the same thing about us? Death has no, no more dominion over us. Well, you're going to find out in a couple of verses. Verse 10. For in that he died, he died to sin once. But that he lives, 
they're getting at once, once and for all. But in that he lives, he lives to God. I think the implication is that he lives to God forever. He died once, doesn't have to die again. Because take your mind back to the, the priesthood of the Old Testament. The sacrifice had to be continual all the time because the work was never done. Christ died. He finished the work. He declared it was finished. He ascended up and he was exalted and he sat down as a priest, still a priest, making intercession for his people. He sat down. It means done, done deal. The work is done. All the work that it took place to secure his people's salvation took place at the cross. Once and for all time. So he lives to God forever to continue to represent his people as a priest, as a mediator, as an advocate. Now, this is what I need us to get right here. It's one of those, if you get anything out of this, get this, points. Likewise, when you see that, it's, it's referring back to what has already been said. It's comparing and saying just like that, in the self-same way. Count yourselves also to be truly dead to sin, but alive to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. The word count, the second word count in verse 11 is the same word we use the word impute or reckon. The idea of a charging. It's an accounting term. Impute, reckon, or count. Either one of those words can be exchanged for that. Put to the account of. Likewise, and the idea is in your new mind that God has given you by the Spirit of God in your, in your new mind, using the faith that God has given you, you count yourself to be what is written here that says that you are. Count yourselves to be truly dead to sin. And to be dead to sin is a mouthful. It's, it's, it's all the things that have been said ahead there, how that, that, that sin has no more, and that death, and that guilt, and that fear, and that bondage, and that condemnation, and hell, and all that has no more dominion over you. The battle is already won, and it's won by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just, Paul's just saying, you know, he... he he lines all this stuff up, all this this beautiful, logical, scriptural, biblical, uh, spirit-filled argument, reasons of why we have what we have is because Christ did what he did in a perfect way. And he's just pretty much saying in verse 11, believe this, believe this. Count it for yourself. If you're one of God's children, if you believe the gospel, this is what you already should be believing. Daily, as you walk by faith, count it to yourself every day. And if you do that with all these things that are written, 
You'll have assurance. You'll have peace. You won't have fear. And you're alive to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, let me just remind you, we read this last week. You don't have to turn there. It's just one verse. You might have it memorized. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, we looked at several texts here. We, we know about that phrase, the old man. We know that the old man is crucified and dead, and we are now in. We are out from underneath that representative, and now we are in. We're, Christ is our representative. We pass from death unto life. We are in the state of justification, and condemnation has passed away. We've passed from death to life. Death has passed away. Dead to sin, dead to its guilt, dead to its condemnation. All that goes with that is passed away. And that will never change. So let me bring this idea into it, ask some questions. Is your human nature, you being a sinner, you still having the ability to commit sins, is your human nature passed away? Is it eradicated? Uh, obviously not. No. You still have that human sinful nature. And God has it there for a purpose. And we've talked about that before. So that's not what this is talking about. The human sinful nature has not passed away. This is talking about our state unchangeable state of justification that has become new and that's not going to change that doesn't waver so our, our human nature has not passed away but you know what it's no big deal God's got it there for a reason We've talked about that before. It's, it's namely to keep us dependent on and looking to Christ so that we don't get too self-righteous. Because if we think that we don't, uh, if we think we're doing pretty good in our obedience, then we would be not looking to Christ as much. And we would need him less and less as we perfected our own selves by what we do. That wouldn't work out, would it? As far as relationship is concerned. But you know what? That's not, even, that's not even the issue. We have a human sinful nature still. But the question is, where's our identity? That's not our identity anymore. That's the point. By faith, our identity is in Christ. In actuality, it's in Christ. By faith, we need to continue to see it. Reckon it to be so for yourself. So when you get into, you know, during the day when you fail and sin during the day, what do you do? Do you waller in guilt and fear and bondage and you just just beat yourself up day after day, hour after hour? And, and just because why would you do that? Because you would be looking on the inside for remedy, right? Whenever a person sins... They are to look to Christ, their Savior. 
There's, of course, repentance. There's confession. There are all these things. There are all the commands and exhortations of the scripture. They're in place. We are to follow those. But if a person is constantly wallowing in their failures, they're not looking to Christ. They're going to lack assurance. They're going to lack peace. You get in a habit of that. You train yourself. And some of these legalistic preachers train you to do that. They'll beat you to death all the time. And they'll require something of you that they won't do themselves. Don't let them lie to you. There is therefore no condemnation to those which are in Christ Jesus. None. No condemnation. So to look inside to see how well we're doing with our remaining human sinful nature that we drag around, Paul called it a body of death. That's a weak foundation. That's conditionalism. That's sinking sand. Personal righteousness? Not in anything we read here today. No. But being found in him, not having mine own righteousness. You might as well just write in there, my own personal righteousness. You've got guys that completely teach this doctrine of personal righteousness. There's a bunch more here, but I... Go to chapter 3. I'm skipping a bunch of stuff. I just want to remind us that in the latter part of the text that we read, our introductory text in Colossians... It talks about how this took place. Talking about nailing those things to the cross that were against us. He was made a curse. He took, he, you know, he took on our curse and killed the old man that was cursed in Adam. And that's how it took place. We talk about that every week. Look at verse 1. I just want to see a couple of verses here. Colossians 3, 1. If then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Be mindful of things above, not on things of earth. You know, this will, this will really help you if you do this, right? <laughs> Can we remember to do this? It's hard to remember this sometimes, isn't it? When we get caught up in our own tunnel vision of me, myself, and I, and what we're doing in our own agenda. But verse 3 says, because you died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. You know, if I was to write a Bible with study notes, right there on the side of that verse, you would put, boom, right? <laughs> you ever seen it? That's a boom right there. <laughs> you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you, does that sound like security at all? It, the rest of this goes on to talk about some, some practical things. When, verse 4, when, you're, when, when Christ, our life, is revealed, and then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, because of that, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of those things' sake, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. 
among whom you also once walked when you lived in these, but now also put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, shameful speech out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Look at here. Put off the old man with his deeds. Here again is the reminder. Just like you reckon it to be so, you account it to be so, you impute it to be so, that th these things are true, that you died with Christ as he was your representative, and you raised with him, and you are exalted in him, seated at the right hand of the throne. And you shall not be moved because of that by faith, as we taught in those two lessons not too long ago, how to live the Christian life. That old man that used to be condemning you, don't let him spiritually and in your mind run your life, but put him off those deeds, those ideas. Put him off. Kill those deeds. They're listed here. And pretty much your conscience tells you this. Before, Even before we were regenerated, our conscience tells us this is how pitiful it is that we, <laughs> the Spirit shows us these things now and amplifies it. But that, with that thought, go back and it says, I read the verse, a couple of verses up, and it says, it says, don't do these things and it names them. It says, on the account of which the sake, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. What's bad is God's people have their sins already paid for. That's good. But those that, don't have their sins paid for, are committing the very same sins that we commit. And the scripture here is saying, don't do those things. These other people that are doing them are, being, are going to be punished for them. Do you see the contrast there? So in other words, by faith, if I see, and then there's the encouragement after that, put off the old man. So in other words, it's like, um, all right. My sins have been paid for. Now I have a pure incentive out of love and thankfulness to God because I, I am thankful he paid for my sins and I could be like these other people who I used to be among before I was converted, but I see now where, what's going to happen to them. You think maybe that's what David, King David was thinking? He says, why does the wicked prosper? I think that's part of it, where he looked at the others and, and he saw their end when he entered the sanctuary of God and he got God's wisdom about the situation. Uh, I, I've said this before. I remember going on top of a, uh, locally, not too far from here, going over top of a hill at night. And I had not really been there before, or at least noticed at night. And I saw the, the city, not a tremendous city, but... A lot of people, a lot of lights. And I thought, there are, there are individual people in there, human beings like me. And I was thinking of the forgiveness of sins that I have as one of God's people. And then thinking of all the people that, are, that have not believed the gospel that are out there, that do not have the forgiveness that I have. But I'm committing similar sins that they're committing. That was kind of weird to me. That made me think and stop and... And see the contrast of, and see the encouragement of the scriptures of, I, I'm thankful I'm not lost among all these people. That's why we got to get the gospel to them. There may have been some elect out there when I was looking out there. But the, 
the disregard for that idea to just say lackadaisically, look, at uh, who cares? I'm saved. They're not. They sin. My sin's paid for. <laughs> Come on now. We cannot. We cannot have that antinomian idea. I'm not going to read the rest of the verses. There's, there's a lot more there. I, I skipped half my notes. I'm going on like an hour. Are there any questions uh, or comments right now from anybody here? You know, uh, something that you talked about as far as that, I mean, I've been uh, going through Ephesians, Ephesians 5, when we talk about like, the differences and how we have to separate ourselves from false gospels, Ephesians 5, 6 and 7. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon them, the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Yeah. That's signifying how we are not to call people that are under false gospel brothers. Because yeah. if we call them brothers, we are becoming partners with them. Yeah, that is a there's some that's a good text there for that for that right there. And there are some um, harmonizing verses, Second John, um, like nine through eleven, talking about when you know of these people that are speaking this wrong doctrine. Don't speak peace to them. It's, in other words, you uh, and, and don't don't bring them into your house in a, in a hospitable way, like agreeing, like oh, you, you're my brother. Come in here and fellowship with me. In other words, you don't pat people on the back and promote them in their false religion, because when you do, it says you're partaker in their evil deeds with them, which would be now the accusation against these people is that they are not abiding in. The doctrine of Christ. They're transgressing against the doctrine of Christ. Those that abide in the doctrine of Christ have both the Father and the Son. When it when it comes to uh, this, is not a game, you know, and, and it's not just salvation. It, it's all truth in the Scripture. We can't just like just be flippant about these things. This is. Uh, this is, this is life and death we're dealing with when we talk about, and I know there's been a lot of buzz uh, this week on um, Facebook about a debate that may be upcoming where one sovereign grace guy wants to debate another sovereign grace guy that is compromising on the truth of the gospel. And I've been waiting for this for 30, almost 31 years. It's like, Equivalent to hitting the lottery to me. It's like I cannot wait until this gets out and, the, and it starts being talked about because it's been swept under the carpet for way too long. For way too long. And it, the issue is about what we talked about. God's chief purpose to glorify himself in the death of Christ. Everything has to match up to that. Uh, you know, we talked about th our theological hermeneutic or our theological interpretation tool, which is the gospel and other sound theology and doctrine that surrounds the gospel. Just think of the idea of glory. You look at any doctrine and if it seems to be not congruent with the glory of God or somehow, for example, a, a false gospel 
that has to do with man's righteousness in any degree is against the glory of God because it is bringing in the glory of man. It talks about, you know, by grace are we saved through faith, not that none of ourselves. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And it's the same idea as glory. If any man glory, let him glory in the Lord. These, these things are not hard. They're just, they're not liked. That's all. All right, we got a... Got something picked out? Another song?